I'm Joe Woodard, and this is the Asia for Life podcast. Uh, this is a new podcast. I'm still playing around with the structure of it, uh, but I'll be sharing at least one or two episodes each week. I'm still trying to decide whether it's feasible to add uh, articles that accompany each podcast episode, but I might be doing that on asiaforlife.com, or I might simply do transcripts, or I might just forget about it. Uh, but anyway, this will probably evolve during the coming months, uh, but I'll do my best to give you valuable content uh, and I welcome your feedback along the way. So um, I'm in Hong Kong, so obviously the number one thing on my mind, on everybody's mind, is the political situation in Hong Kong. The question people are asking is, it, is it just going to be a tug of war that's never actually resolved? Or will the Chinese military step in? Like, these are the big questions people are asking, and then a, and then a million other questions locally about the future of democracy here and everything. Anyway, I don't know the answer to any of those questions, and I'm actually not going to be covering them much in this podcast, as far as I know right now, but um, uh, so I do care about, about what's happening uh, very much, and praying, of course, as, as are so many people around the world. But I also feel like it's important to discuss things that other people aren't really talking about, um, and so and I especially want to cover issues that are relevant to the pro-life movement, especially in East Asia. So that will mainly include like the typical beginning and end of life issues like abortion and euthanasia. And then more broadly could be a dozen other topics like adoption, foster care, orphanages, issues related to family separation, drugs, divorce, the death penalty, war. I guess there's so many angles you can talk about pro-life issues. But the main point, of course, the main point of being pro-life is to be against murder. Uh, against the unjust killing of other human beings. So that's going to be part of each podcast episode somehow, in just about every case. There might there might be some occasional episodes where I just talk more about a cultural issue that's not necessarily a pro-life issue, but well, anyway, that'll be for the future. So today, um, I could talk about what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, I feel like I could discuss that as part of the Asia for Life podcast, but I decided to talk about an issue that I think is even more important and actually even more politically important for China and something the world is not really paying much attention to. So I'm going to talk about the situation of Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang is the province in the far northwest of China. It borders a bunch of countries like India, Russia, Mongolia, um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, what, a bunch of other stands, I don't know. Uh, but you've probably, you've probably seen at least a, something about Xinjiang in recent months because there's been more press about it like in the past year than there ever was before. But if you don't know anything of what's happening there, um, you should read about it. So I'm going to do something a, a little different. Instead of trying to just summarize a situation for you, I'm instead going to read how others have summarized it. So there's a list of articles about the ways that China is oppressing people who live in Xinjiang. And all these articles are listed out in a Google Doc, which I'll, I'll link to. And they're mostly recent, mostly from like starting in 2017 until now, because that's the time frame when China has built a bunch of um, concentration camps, basically re-education centers. Not concentration camps in the sense of like, you know, the first thing people think of when they hear the word concentration camp is the Nazi concentration camps that killed millions of Jews and, and everyone else. So they're not like, they're not processing, like killing them, but they are processing them through this, through these concentration camps 
in order to kill their ethnic identity, their cultural identity. Uh, sorry, not their ethnic identity, their cultural heritage and identity. And in, in the process of doing that, of course, there's a million different ways that they're oppressing and harming and often killing people too in the process. So anyway, what's happening in Xinjiang is important for a lot of reasons. Of course, it's important politically, but I'm not so concerned about the political implications, even though there are political implications for, for all of China, for a lot of the world. But I'm, I'm simply concerned that the people in Xinjiang are they're just people who are being oppressed and tortured and brainwashed, unjustly imprisoned, often killed. Um, I'm, I'm just concerned because they're human people. They're normal people. They're trying to live their lives and make a living for their families. And in the process of trying to live normal lives, they're way too often being imprisoned and killed and etc. So I don't know how to tie this in with pro-life issues exactly, but it's a topic I really wanted to cover. And I, I had a feeling that if I just started talking about it in the process of uncovering all the other kinds of oppression, I'm, I'm definitely going to find instances of forced abortion, coerced abortion, etc. And, and I have. But for this first episode right now today, uh, I'm not going to talk about abortion per se, about, you know, horrible stories of coerced abortion or infanticide. It's stuff that we typically talk about in the pro-life movement. But um, there is there is a lot of life and death stuff going on like stuff that's really a matter of life and death. And um, so I'm going to share a story that gives an idea of how extreme China's violence can be. Because even when it seems like China is trying to be peaceful and restrained and understanding, and sometimes they are, like sometimes they, they really are trying to do their job. And other times it's all a show, it's, it's just propaganda. And a lot of times I think the leaders don't even know the difference. Anyway, the reality is that regardless of, of their intentions and regardless of whatever they're doing with their policies, they're willing to shed a lot of innocent blood to get stuff done. So, okay, here's a, a long list of articles for further reading. Um, I'm actually just going to read several of them um, and let you, let you look and, and read whatever suits your fancy. So the first one is Bibliography of Select News Reports and Academic Works. It's kind of a boring title, but um, it's a 567-page bibliography. So if you've ever read a bibliography... 567 pages is really long for a bibliography, but it's just about all the resources this guy could find, articles, published materials about China's concentration camps or re-education centers or whatever you want to call them for the, for the Uyghur people. So next, next one in this Google Doc list is Statement by Concerned Scholars on China's Mass Detention of Turkic Minorities. Next, Twitter account of Concerned Scholars of Xinjiang. I guess any scholars who are tweeting are probably not living in China now. Database of detention camps, Xinjiang victims database. Okay, so that database has 5,086 testimonies uh, submitted by the family members of those who are in the re-education centers, or some of them, they're no longer in the re-education centers, but they're still under house arrest. So this is a big risk that these people are taking because, I mean, it, the vast majority of Uyghurs, they will not share their stories because it's too big a sacrifice because they know their family and friends are going to be persecuted if they don't stay silent, but there are many thousands who are willing to take the risk. So um, next article, brainwashing, police guards, and coercive internment. Evidence from Chinese government documents about the nature and extent of Xinjiang's, quote, vocational training internment camps, end quote. Next, surveillance in China's Xinjiang region. Ethnic sorting, coercion, and inducement. Next, China's attack on Uyghurs isn't counterterrorism, it's ugly repression. 
That's actually an editorial from the Washington Post, which was co-authored by Sam Brownback. Okay, just a few more. If I don't, if I don't stop somewhere, I'll never stop. But uh, just five more. Human Rights Watch put out China's algorithms of repression. They're very clever in how they repress people using the internet. Amnesty International's Patrick Poon put out families of missing Uyghurs terrified to search for their loved ones. And that's that is really tragic. Just the people feel like they can't even look and try to find their missing relatives because they'll get them in trouble. They'll get other relatives and, and friends in trouble. Horrifically tragic. Okay, next one. List of Uyghur intellectuals imprisoned in China from 2016. That's from 2016 until now. There's a lot of professors and university presidents and a lot of people who are who are not free, basically because they're Uyghur. Next, criminal arrests in Xinjiang account for 21% of China's total in 2017. Okay, that might sound like a bunch of numbers. Uh, sorry if this is getting boring, but to put that in context, Xinjiang has about 1.8% of China's population. 21% of China's arrests happened in Xinjiang. Most of those happened among the Uyghur population. So that means Uyghurs are being arrested at roughly 30 the rate of Han Chinese people. That's I just did the calculation in my head. I could be off, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of people are being arrested. There's really no way to fathom. There's no group of people in the world that you can compare this to, not even in North Korea. Next, Ghost World. In Northwest China, the state is using technology to pioneer a new form of terror capitalism. Gosh. And lastly, uh, violent paternalism on the banality of Uyghur unfreedom. Okay, this one's really sad. They use the word banal and just just the little ways. Not even like, you don't even need to read about people dying bloody awful deaths. It's the way that people are controlled every second of their of their lives everywhere they go it's it's horrific like in, in an obviously orwellian way so um if you want to if you want to see i don't know that that might actually be a good place to start that article on the banality of uyghur unfreedom so it's all terrible i mean it's it's like reading reports from north korea it's like it's like reading about the stuff that took place during china's cultural revolution except it's aimed specifically at the uyghur people group so it's also different because China has better technology now. So they're able to use all their tools to be even more totalitarian than ever. Um, I, I'm, I'm not hating on the Chinese government. Like overall, China is not as bad as it was, you know, 50 years ago or 30 years ago. But what's happening in Xinjiang right now. Okay, so again, it's not as bad as the Cultural Revolution was. But today, we're talking about today, nothing beats what China is doing to the people in Xinjiang. North Korea might be an exception, even with all the injustices, the torture, rape, systematic brainwashing of inmates in Xinjiang re-education centers. Um, they're not facing starvation and malnutrition. So in that narrow sense, it's not as bad as North Korea, I guess. Anyway, to end this episode, uh, I'm going to share about a story that actually happened in 2014. So it's not related to the re-education centers because those have been built in the past few years. But it's important to remember that, okay, they're called, quote, vocational education and training centers. Those are not the core of the problem. You know, you read sensational headlines about concentration camps, but there's been repressive violence that's been China's policy for years now, long before the concentration camps. So 
The story comes from Shacha County in a remote part of Xinjiang. Um, at the end of Ramadan in 2014, 40 women were arrested for wearing overly traditional Muslim clothing. It's illegal for Chinese Muslim women to cover their heads, but I guess they thought they could do it anyway, maybe because it was a religious holiday, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, they weren't allowed to stay at the mosque, they were arrested, and then there was a protest following their arrest, and the protest got violent, and apparently the protesters tried to raid the police station, and the police responded by killing 100 people, according to their estimate. Presumably, the number is much higher, but nobody knows because the area was put on lockdown and all the internet and phone communication was shut down. So there was, you know, a lot of people died, a lot of people got shot, and there was one man who had a bullet in his leg, and so he needed help, and someone helped him to get to a veterinarian. The veterinarian removed the bullet. And if he hadn't, the man, you know, he would have had other complications, but he was afraid to go to the hospital because he would have been arrested at the hospital because he was present during the massacre. So this doctor helped him, possibly saving his life, certainly saving his leg, and because he helped that guy, the doctor is serving an eight-year prison sentence. He was 65 years old at the time of his arrest in 2014. He's married. He has five kids. At that time, he had recently retired from his job. And um, he, uh, he had started his own private practice. I think it was at his house. So I'm guessing he probably wanted to spend more time with his family. But that's no longer possible. As it is also impossible for hundreds of thousands of other Uyghur men right now. So um, this particular story isn't, it's not the worst story I've read, uh, you know, from Xinjiang. It's not the greatest injustice that anybody has faced there, but it does show the lengths to which Chinese authorities will go to punish people who are on the wrong side in any way. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to close an episode about this kind of subject, except to say, except to ask people to pray for the region of Xinjiang. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I've been praying for a long time, for many years, specifically for this Chinese province. Um, it's one of the hardest places in the world to live, and it's it's just not okay. So let's pray. <laughs>